do surrender all to you this afternoon. Lord, when I think of people surrendering in war, they usually come out with their hands up. But for some reason, we could sing this song and have no posture of surrendering before you. Father, break us today. Father, we want to surrender all, and that means that we don't just surrender on Sunday mornings. We surrender Monday through Saturday. Father, would you help us to surrender every aspect of who we are? Surrender our work to you. Surrender our relationships to you. Surrender our degrees to you. Everything about us, would you get the glory out of it? Father, we thank you this morning, this afternoon, that you have gathered your people to sing about the praises of your son, Jesus Christ. Help us this morning to be on one accord. Help us this morning not to have more fun with ice pops than we do with Jesus Christ. Father, would you get at us this morning through your word? In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Welcome, Epiphany Church. It is good to be here. What a delight and honor. I'm always, always, always happy to see each and every one of you. It is Family and Friends Day, so welcome to all of our family and all of our friends. If this is your first time here, we're excited to see you. Um, by way of introduction, my name is Brandon Watts. I do get the great privilege of serving as the lead pastor here at Epiphany Church, and it is a joy. This is a church that is serious about community, serious about biblical community, serious about the community we live in, seri serious about the gospel, serious about Jesus, and of course, we are serious about the word. Uh, in fact, let's just jump right to it. If you can grab your Bibles and meet me in the second to the last book of the Bible, uh, the book of Jude. Uh, if you grab two pages and flip, you will miss Jude. It's that, it's that small. Uh, it's literally one chapter. Uh, I'm so happy to see Denzel and Nicole here. Y'all see Denzel and Nicole in the back? Y'all wave your hands. So good to see them. I know some of y'all don't know who they are. They, they, they used to go here for a while, and the Lord, uh, they, they were disobedient and moved down to Washington, D.C. Praying that the Lord would bring them back, and they have a beautiful baby they are back with, so it is good to see y'all. Uh, all right, Jude chapter 24. Uh, let me quickly endorse, really, really quickly, our fourth Wednesday night prayer and Bible study that is going to be taking place this Wednesday. Uh, typically, we do prayer in this room, and then we do the, a time of worship, and then we do a Bible study right here in this room. Uh, this Wednesday will be slightly different. We will do prayer in this room from 7 to 7.30. We are on our knees for those of you who have that posture. Uh, it's okay if you want to sit up. It's okay if you want to walk around and pray. We just ask that that half an hour is filled with prayers, and we like to fill the room up with prayer. So we are okay if you are audibly praying, if you're silently praying, whatever, uh, but we do want to fill this room. I do want to say that, you know, that half an hour is not a filler moment. It's not the moment that we are waiting for more people to come to start Bible study. Uh, that is the moment that we get before the throne of God that Jesus Christ has bought the access for you to get to. So we want to come in here and we want to experience corporate worship. And then at 730, what we'll do is we will quickly take ourselves outside and we will do worship outside in the front of the building. And we will do a small Bible study in the front of the building uh, exactly at 730. If the weather permits, if the weather holds up, we will be outside. So Please come ready for that. Brothers, we really, really, really want to see you. Of course, sisters, we want to see you as well. Uh, but brothers, we, it, it's good. When you're out in the community, it's good to have guys around just to protect uh, our ladies and just, you know, to have a good male presence is very, very important. So uh, brothers, we definitely want to see you. Uh, do me a favor and never underestimate 
the power of the gospel being proclaimed openly. Never underestimate that. I think sometimes we can, you know, think that, you know, we, of course, we're supposed to hear the gospel, but it, it really, Romans 1.16 says, it is the power of God for salvation. One of my favorite theologians is a guy, he was a pastor at the Metropolitan Baptist Church in the mid-1800s, a guy by the name of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And back in the day in the 1800s, they didn't have microphones, so you had to literally project your voice. And he was preaching at a, um, at, at a guest church down the street, and he wanted to test the acoustics of the room because they didn't have mics. And so he snuck in the night before when the cleaning crew was cleaning the bathrooms and cleaning uh, different parts of the building. He snuck into the auditorium. He looked around, didn't see anybody in the auditorium. So he got to the pulpit and began to over and over and over again quote John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And he kept quoting it over and over again. And unbeknownst to him, there was a janitor that was in the back of the auditorium cleaning, runs down to the front and said, I need to give my life to this Jesus that you keep quoting. Don't underestimate the, that's not a a trick, like that is a true story. Don't underestimate the power of open air preaching, open air communication of the gospel. And that's what we'll do on Wednesday night as we are uh, outside or doing word on the street. All right, Jude chapter 24, it's one verse, not chapter, but uh, Jude 24. It's only one chapter, it's not 24 chapters. We'll do two verses. 24 says this, Now unto him who was able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord. Underline these four attributes. Be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now, and forever. Amen. This is a very, very familiar uh, passage here at this church. I legitimately read it every single time we are about to end our service. Uh, And so that should not be uh, foreign to you. But I want to preach this afternoon from the topic entitled, The God Who Keeps Us. The God Who Keeps Us. Let us look to the Lord. Uh, Father, uh, would you open our eyes so that we may behold the wondrous things out of your law, Psalms 119. Father, we need you. We're desperate for you. The last thing that our family and friends need today is my opinion. The last thing we need is my good ideas or bad ideas, whatever ones they are. Father, we need the word and that and that alone. So, Father, would you help me not to add to this text, not to take away from it, But I pray, oh God, that a text as familiar as this in terms of us reading it here every week, I pray that it wouldn't lose its sense of awe, that we would be enamored by the richness and the nutrients that is found in these two small verses. Father, we need Jesus today to be crystallized in our minds. Would you show us him in this text so we can bring you glory and bring you honor by worshiping your son? It is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. The God who keeps us. Uh, Last week, I I went on a binge watching moment, and I started to watch movie after movie on Netflix. And and there was one movie that I was about to watch, and I was excited to watch it because everything about the movie looked great. The movie is called How It Ends. It's a movie that stars Theo James and uh, and Forrest Whitaker, uh, two actors I really, really like. And everything about the movie, I mean, I watched the trailer. The trailer looked like it was great. It looked action-packed. The actors were great. It looked like it had a, some budget behind it because they had great cinema. It just looked like a, it was going to be a great movie. 
Started watching the movie, and I was right. It was a great movie. And halfway through the movie, Ty and I looked at each other and said, I think this movie is going to end dumb. You, you ever had one of those movies where you were watching, everything was good, and then the credits just popped up? you like, what happened? That's it? And you know, it, the, the, a bad ending to a movie has the ability to mess up the whole movie. I don't care how great the movie was before. There's a few things in life that I just do not like. I do not like traffic for no reason. Where you come out and you're like, it ain't no accident. Why was we slowing down? I do not like slow Wi-Fi and buffering videos. I just can't take stuff like that. And I cannot take bad endings to movies. Which is why most of us like Marvel movies. My boys love Marvel movies. Because they normally end well. And then you know what we do. After the credits are going, we sit in there waiting to see what's going to happen. Because they usually set up the sequel or the next movie by the, uh, the, the little clip that they show after the credits. Well, in our text this morning, uh, this afternoon, Jude is not going to disappoint us with a bad ending. He has spent the last 24 or 23 verses hammering away at some really, really good thoughts. He talks about contending for the faith in this book. And he gets to the end of it, and this is not a bad ending. It doesn't spoil, it doesn't mess up the rest of the book. This is a very powerful ending that he uses. And the inscription above my text, and I don't know what your Bible says, but my Bible says there's a small word in there that says a doxology. Do you see that in your Bibles or on your devices? A doxology is an expression of praise. Doxology usually, not always, but usually comes at the, either the end of a book but in traditional Baptist circles, it typically comes at the end of, a, at the end of a service. I grew up in Fayetteville, North Carolina, and I told you last week, I used to go to a church called First Baptist Church. Uh, the lead pastor there, or the senior pastor, was a guy by the name of Reverend James Brown, not to be confused with the Godfather of Soul, uh, but his name literally was James Brown. And uh, I told you last week that every time we entered the service, we always saying glad to be in the service, glad to be in the service one more time. He didn't have to let me live. But I didn't tell you that we always ended the service with the same song, song that was written by a guy named Thomas Kenn in 1674. We would end with a song that says, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here we below. Praise him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And you know, we didn't just say amen. We went, amen. Y'all Baptists in this place. And that's how we would end every single service, by doing what's called a doxology song. We would end by making sure God got the praise. Doxology literally comes from a Greek word called doxa. It, is, it means glory or grandeur or splendor. It is how we attribute praise to God, and typically churches do it at the end of a service. Jude busts out in a doxology at the end of this book. Now, it's important not to confuse a doxology with a benediction. Anybody ever heard of a benediction? Now, a benediction is different. Now, a doxology ascribes praise to God, but a benediction, it pronounces a blessing over the assembled congregation. All right, let me put a little Bible here so that it makes a little bit more sense. Watch how Numbers 624 spews out a benediction, which doesn't, it doesn't ascribe praise to God, but pronounces a blessing over you before you leave. Here's Numbers 624. It says, the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you. Look at the personal pronouns here. 
And it says, and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. That is a benediction. But a doxology has nothing to do with you at all. A doxology has everything to do with God. Here's a doxology, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. Now unto him who is able to do immeasurably, more than we can ask or imagine, according to the power that works within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. I intentionally end our service by a doxology because I want the final words to be giving praise to our king that we just preached about, the king that we just worshiped during service, the king we just took communion about. I want our final words to be a praise to him. Now, in our text, we get a doxology. It's, it's nothing but praise to our God. Now, it behooves us to work through this slowly. Uh, I'm probably going to spend most of my time in verse 24, but it really does behoove us to really, really pick up everything, like word by word, of what Jude is saying. Now, before we get into verse 24 and 25, I think it's important for you to understand who the author is. And then let me tell you why it's important. Jude is the author, and if you look at his description verse or his first verse, notice how he introduces himself in this letter. He says in this letter, he says, Jude, a servant of Jesus and a brother of James. This is interesting because Jude is actually a half brother of Jesus. But he doesn't even mention that. He doesn't see himself as a brother of Jesus. He sees himself as a servant of his half brother. Okay, don't miss this. If I was Jesus' brother, I can promise you I'm pulling rank and I'm leading with the fact that me and Jesus are related. I'm a, I mean, I'm just, that's how I'm leading. I'm like, me and JC grew up together. So everything I'm about to say to you is a command. So you need to listen. Like, you disobey me, you disobey my brother. And, and you know, honestly, uh, I, that's, that's just me. I'm sinful in the heart. But, but honestly, this is how you know Jesus was the Messiah. Let me tell you how you know Jesus is 100% God. Because even his family worshipped him. Like, consider your siblings. You would never worship your siblings. I look at my boys, and there's no worship of each other in the house. I'm just telling you. But, but, but James here, Jude here, worships his own brother. How does he do it? He says, I'm a servant of him. I'm not leading with him. I'm a, I'm a half-brother. No, I'm his servant. And so does James. James is another half-brother of Jesus. And James also always serves Jesus, even Jesus' own mother. Like, remember the wedding at Cana when the Bible says that they came to Mary. They didn't come to Jesus. They came to Mary and said, the wine has run out. And what does Mary say? Whatever he tells you to do, do that. Now, remember Jesus' response to her. He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? First of all, you got to be the Messiah to talk to your mother like that. I mean, woman, what if, like, if I say that to my mother, she's going to backhand me. But this is how you know, among other biblical affirmations, that Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. One of the affirmations that we normally rush over is the fact that his siblings worshipped him. So Jude here opens our text and he says, listen, I'm not even worthy to count myself or even call myself a half-brother of Jesus. I'm his servant. Now that's going to become important because look at the words that he says throughout this, uh, these two verses. Verse 24. Now unto him who was able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Let me lift up the first part of that. Now unto him 
who is able. What an assurance that we get from Jude this morning that we serve a God that is able. Some of you should worship right now because you came in here with a whole bunch of issues. You came in here all messed up, but the God that you serve, some of you came in here just coming off of the heels of a bad diagnosis from the doctor, but your God is able. He's able to do whatever he wants to do. And so, you know, there's many, there's many doxologies that simply talk about God being able. Let, let me show you them. Not only this one, but Romans chapter 16, if you're writing notes, Romans 16, 25. I put this out on Facebook this morning because this one gripped my heart when I was reading it. Now unto him who was able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. Now unto him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think according to the power that works within us. And finally, Jude jumps on this able bandwagon and, and Jude says, now unto him who was able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless for the presence of his, of his, great, uh, of his, uh, presence of his glory with great joy. Jude here does not look back at a time when God used to be able. He's not promising in the text a time in the future where God will be able. This is a present assurance. Right now, whatever you walked in here with, God is able. Can we praise a able God in this room? Our God is not weak. Our God is not handicapped. Our God is not constrained in what he can do. He has like sovereign jurisdiction over his divine prerogative to do whatever he wants. He is able, able to strengthen you through that bad diagnosis, able to provide for you even though you got laid off. This is the God we serve. And I praise God for being able. And, and you know, most of you in this room, if God hasn't come through for you, don't question his ability to be able. He might not be willing. And that's different because he might be allowing you to go through that to purify you. But don't ever question his ability. Our God is able. So what does Jude say? He says, now unto him who is able. But, but you know, when, when I look at this, I th when I think about God being able, I have to ask the question, what is he able to do? I don't have to make this up. The text says God is able, I love this, to keep you. I had a praise break this morning when I read that, that God is able. You know why that's important? Because God is able to keep you when you cannot keep yourself. Don't act like you always wanted to be in church and you always wanted to worship Jesus. There are moments even in your walk where you are unfaithful to him. But even though you're unfaithful to him, the Bible says he's able to keep you. He's able to keep you. And some of you in here this morning, you are in that moment where you are ready to walk away from it. You question your faith. But I love the fact that the strength of him keeping us is not based on you keeping yourself because you can't. The strength of him keeping us is based completely on him. There are times in my faith and I'm a pastor, but there are times in my faith where I'm, I'm genuinely going, God, are you sure? Like, this is the road you're taking us down, especially when suffering hits. Like, you're really going to allow that? But then I read this. Oh, God is able to keep me even in the midst of it. Now, there, there's a melodic line that runs through the book of Jude. I, I've taught you guys before on what a melodic line is. It's a, a musical term that talks about a succession of notes. And the notes together make a rhythm. What we see in the book of Jude is a rhythm forming. This is not the first time that Jude talks about God being able to keep you. 
It's not. In fact, he opened up in verse 1 and said, Judah, servant of Jesus, uh, Jesus Christ, the brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, listen, and kept for Jesus Christ. Talks about it again in verse number 6. And the angels who did not stay within their own positions of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains. Verse 13, it continues, casting up the foam of their shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom and utter darkness has been reserved forever. Same ideas being kept, reserved. Verse 21, keep yourself in the love of God. Are you picking up this theme that is happening in Jude? And then finally, he ends it with a doxology. And in the doxology, he says, now unto him who is able to keep you. You serve a God that keeps you. Jude is grabbing you by the lapels this morning and saying your God is a keeping God. Really what this is talking about is a doctrinal position that we hold to called the perseverance of the saints. Write that down if you've never heard of that before. Go and study the scriptures on the perseverance of the saints. Perseverance of the saints is a, is a, a way to summarize the Bible's teaching on the fact that God is able to keep you through salvation. In other words, there are, there's no such thing as a Christian that can say, I used to be a Christian. I used to go to this guy that cut my hair, man. He was nice with the clippers. Soul was all over the place. And we used to talk about the gospel over. And every time I sat in the chair, I'd be like, man, let me talk to you about Jesus again. And we talk, and he's, you know, he's one of those guys that used to dibble and dabble in a bunch of different religions. Like, he didn't denounce Christianity, but, but he thought Christianity was on par with a bunch of other things. And he used to say to me, you know, one, one time I was talking to him, he said, Rev, listen, this is what he used to call me, Rev, listen, you know, I used to be a Christian. And I was like, bro, that's impossible. You used to be a Christian? You mean God saved you, but he didn't have enough power to keep you saved? Wait, I've just read this text that said, now unto him who is able to keep you. The God that we serve keeps us. And I know some of you are like, wait a minute, but I've seen people walk away from the faith. But, but John talks about this in 1 John. Stay with me. In 1 John, John says, they left us, but they were not of us. So everybody professing faith may not be of us. What shows that you are is if you're able to be preserved over time. And the perseverance of the saints has nothing to do with your strength. You don't have any. The perseverance of God keeping you has everything to do with God's strength. You can't keep you. But God is able to keep you. Let me put a little Bible on the perseverance of the saints. Romans chapter 8 verse 39 says it this way. No height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 says, And I am sure of this, that he who has begun a good work will bring it to completion. Finally, in Romans chapter 11 verse 29, it says, The gifts and the callings of God is irrevocable. The God that we serve doesn't only save you, that same God maintains your salvation. Yeah. I, I always say it, but it's true. Listen, it is a great miracle that God took your dead heart and brought it to life. But it is also a great miracle that he kept you saved. Yeah. Because if we could have lost our salvation this morning, you would have lost it. Yeah, yeah. Not last week. Not Because you know why? Because we, you know, we, the, the holiness of God demands perfection, and we're going to talk about that. But you can lose your salvation, not over action, over something you thought. 
I don't miss this. The holiness of God demands that your thoughts be pure 100% all the time. Can we agree that our thoughts are not pure 100% all the time? And so we need God to preserve us. We need God to keep us. And the Bible says this morning, now unto him who is able to keep you. Christianity is not a fraternity that you can denounce at any moment. When you say, I've trusted in Jesus, and your heart has been regenerated, your heart has been changed, he's taken the heart of stone and given you a heart of flesh, there is no way you can say, I'm not saved anymore. You know, I was working on a Word document this morning, kind of looking through some of the sermon notes, and I was working on a Word document, and I wrote a word that I misspelled, and instead of copying it and deleting it or just hitting the delete button, all I did was hit undo. Listen, in Christianity, God doesn't have a divine undo button on your Christian walk. The moment you've trusted in Jesus, the Bible says his gifts and calling are irrevocable. He cannot go back on it. So the Bible says, now unto him who is able to keep you. What does he keep us from? Look at the text, from stumbling. See, I grew up like Ty. Ty says she grew up uh, memorizing the King James Version. So did I. And I originally memorized this verse in King James. And in the King James Version, it says, now unto him who is able to keep you. But listen to this, from falling. Now, I like the way ESV puts more clarity on it because stumbling precedes falling. In other words, God is not only able to keep you from falling on your face, the God we serve keeps you on your feet. Because if I walk off this stage and I stumble, that doesn't mean I actually fell. It means I tripped. God we serve keeps you from tripping. He keeps you from stumbling. He doesn't just keep you from falling. He keeps you on your feet. So the Bible says now in him who is able to keep us, keep us from doing what? From stumbling. God preserves you. In the midst of false teaching, in the midst of perversion of the gospel, God keeps us through it. Here's what uh, Proverbs chapter 24, verse 16 says. For the righteous fall seven times, but he rises again. God, we serve. Help us. You know why he does? Because he's holding your hand. You're not holding his. Don't miss this. There, I'm told of a story of a little boy. He was walking with his father in the street, and the little boy took his little hand, and he grabbed his his uh, father's finger, and they're walking along the way, and the boy stumbled, and he fell down. The father picked him up and dusted him off and said, are you okay? He said, I'm fine. So he grabs his father's finger again, and he's walking along the way, and this time he's holding it tighter. But the same results happen. He fell down again. The father picks him up and says, are you all right? And the son says, I'm okay, but I have a better idea. Instead of me holding your hand, why don't you hold my hand? And the father took his big hand and he clutched it around his son's little hand and they walked and did not fall. In a greater, in a deeper, in a higher way, this is what Jude is getting at. That God is able to keep you from stumbling because he's holding, his big divine hand is holding yours, not the other way around. And here's what I love John Tennis say, none can snatch them out of my hand. God's hand is so big that nobody can snatch us out but it's so strong that you cannot crawl out. You cannot get out of, and he does not fall out of love with you. He loves you so much that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for you, and that death over your sin is permanent. So the Bible says here, now unto him who was able to keep us from stumbling, but he doesn't just keep us from stumbling. Look at the text. The God that keeps you from stumbling also presents you in heaven. Look at the text. Now when him who was able to keep you from stumbling 
and to present you. The Bible shows us here that this God is able to keep us here on earth, but he also one day will present you in heaven. And when he presents you in heaven, he's not presenting you as some broken showpiece. Like you do know every one of us in here will have to be presented before the Lord. I don't care if you trusted in Jesus. I don't care if you haven't trusted in Jesus. All of us have a day that we will, as they say, meet our maker. In fact, the Bible, Bible will say it this way, that we will all have to stand before the judgment seat. Every single one of us. And the crazy thing is we live life as though we won't stand before God. You do things and we make decisions and we run ahead of God and we do things, even if you trusted in Jesus, we do things that are so left of the gospel that we think God will never call me out on that. But one day the Bible says you will stand before this God. But here is the assurance of the believer. When he presents you and he doesn't present you as a broken showpiece, there's a word in verse 24 that really should make you have a praise break. It literally says, now unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling and presents you, here's the joy, blameless. Like, this messes me up every time I, you know why it messes me up? Those of us in this room that know we can be blamed for a lot, rejoice over the fact that you'll stand before God as blameless. Like you. Consider you. You will stand before a perfect God and he will look at you and see perfection. I know you hear this every week. You're like, Pastor, I'm not going to rejoice because I heard that already. I heard it last week. I heard it the week before. I heard it in 2015 when we first started church. You keep talking about how. But this is so important for us because all, like, if he presents you on your own merit, you can be blamed for a lot and you are not spotless. But the, okay, Leviticus 1, I think it's uh, verse 3, talks about how the sacrifice of the animals in the Old Testament, the sacrifice had to be without a spot or without a blemish. You do realize if he presents you based on your merit, you have spots and you have blemishes. But here's the gospel. He accredits to you his blameless life. He accredits to you his spotlessness. He accredits to you perfection. And so we stand before God blameless, not based on your own merit, but based on the fact that Jesus never sinned. Not deceit was it. He wasn't even found in his mouth. And here's the craziest part of the gospel. I don't get, I don't just get joy over the fact that he presents us as blameless, but I get joy over the fact, thinking the fact, thinking to the fact that Jesus Christ was presented on the cross as a sinner. Because of your sin, Jesus stood condemned and he's presented before his father who he always had relationship with as though he lived like you. And he died the death that you were supposed to die. And on the flip side of it, he now was able to go to heaven and say, here's my sons and here's my daughters and I present them as spotless. The Bible says he presents us. But he does it a certain way. He presents us as a shiny, perfect trophy, a showpiece. Somebody, and you know, what's, you know what's dope about him presenting you as blameless? He doesn't do it begrudging. He's not upset about presenting you. Like he's not sitting there going, God, I can't believe I got to give all this glory and righteousness to a bunch of sinners. He's not upset about it. You know how I know? Because there's an emotion that's described in the text. The, the emotion is this. Now unto him who was able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory. Here's the emotion. With great joy. 
When God presents you, when Jesus presents you before the Father, he presents you with joy. This is why it is so important that we come, because this joy, this, it's not joy, great joy that's talked about in the text is, is singing and rejoicing. But yet we come into the house of God and we are joyless. We don't come in worshiping. We don't come in singing because the, the truth of the matter is, yes, you'll have joy in heaven because the Bible says in his presence, there is fullness of joy. But let, let me promise you that the joy that's talked about in this text is not just the joy of the presented. It's the joy of the presenter. Jesus is happy to present you to God the Father. Okay, how do I know that? Hebrews 12 says, with the joy set before him, he endures the cross. What joy was there in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ? You. You are the joy. Like, does this not do something in your heart? Like, it's no way you can hear that and say, yeah, that's cool, you know, but that's all right. I'm going to go out and get some island pops. No, you need to rejoice over the fact that our Savior has died for us. Died and he rose again, and the Bible says he does it. With great joy. Okay, so verse 24, I'll do verse 25 really quickly. Verse 24 shows us that we should trust in the God who keeps us. Verse 25 shows us that we should praise the God who keeps us. Look at verse 25. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now, and forever. Amen. Do you know the exclusive nature of the God that we are praising? Look at 25. It says, to the only God. In other words, God isn't the wisest of a bunch of gods. He's not the smartest of a bunch of gods. That, that's nice to say, but he's not. He's not, he, he's not on a council. He is, the, according to the text, the only God. He's the, not only the only God, but he's the only Savior. And oftentimes, you know, Savior in the New Testament is mentioned at least 25 times. And most of the times it refers to Jesus as our Savior. And he's 100% your Savior. But don't miss the fact, because oftentimes we think that Jesus, you know, is saving us from an angry God and his wrath. No, the Bible just says that God, the Father, is your Savior. You know how I know it? Because he sent Jesus Christ to die for you. In other words, you're not just saved from the wrath of God. You're saved to the love of God. There was a loving God that wanted you saved and decided that he would send his son in order to save us. So the Bible says here that he is the only God. That is who we should praise. But how does he save us? Look at the text. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. You are not saved based on your own merit. You are not saved because you pulled yourself up by your own bootstraps or because you white knuckled it. You are not saved. Let me help you. Because of that silly list of do's and don'ts. You're not saved because you follow the rules. You follow the rules because you are saved. You don't follow the rules to appease a God. God loved you enough through Jesus Christ that he already sent him. He loves you that much. We don't got to follow rules for him to love us. We follow rules because he's already loved us, not to gain his love. So the Bible says here, through Jesus Christ, the only way to be saved, neglect your false gods. Neglect your false sense of merit. Neglect the things that you are trying to do to be saved. There is only one Savior, and his name is Jesus Christ. And Jesus says in John 10, if you come in any other way, you're a thief and a robber. The only way to come through to be in a relationship with a perfect God is, as the Bible says, 
our Savior through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he, he busts out in a praise here, and he lists four attributes, which, by the way, this is the only doxology that has these four attributes listed back to back to back. Look at the attributes. Basically, he's saying, praise the glory of God. Praise the majesty of God. Praise the dominion of God. Praise the authority of God. Like the authority of God is his sovereign control to do whatever he wants to do. This is, this is divine prerogative. Like, no, he's not questioning. He doesn't sit and go, man, what do you think I should do? Praise the authority of our God. Here's the question I have for you this morning or afternoon. How are things with you and Jesus? If, if you haven't trusted in him, have you considered the fact that the same consequence that Jesus received on the cross still awaits you? And those of you who have trusted in Jesus, how is your relationship with him? Is he just the thing you do on Sundays? Or is he your all? Is he central? Is he your everything? Is he every part of who you are? I've noticed that we are easy to say, listen, I love Jesus and he's the centrality of my life. But if we dissect your life, he's so not the central part of your life. Everything else is. Your job is. That relationship is. Don't act like y'all. Don't act like our relationships. We don't put even marriages. Like I love my wife, but she ain't before Jesus. I'll, I'll, I'll kneel at the feet of Jesus Christ. And that helps me to be a better husband. And so all of you in here that are putting other things before Jesus, you need to figure out this morning, how is your relationship with Jesus? Every head bowed and every eye closed. I want to pray for us in this room because I realize that there are some that came on family and friends. You haven't trusted in Jesus. You don't know. As they used to say, you don't know him in the pardon of your sins, which means your sins still remain. For others of you in here, you have trusted in Jesus, but he's not central. Father, I pray for everybody in this room today. Before we go out and enjoy a little bit of good weather and enjoy ice pops, Lord, I pray that we would get serious with you. For those that are in this room that haven't trusted in you, Father, would you help them to see their deep need for you today? Father, we need you way to have access, the only way to be presented as blameless is through Jesus. It's through him taking his righteous life given to us. Father, would you help the person that doesn't know you? I thank you that they came today. Father, we have an agenda and our agenda is to see them in right relationship with you. Father, I also pray for the young man or young woman that knows you, but hadn't been faithful to you, haven't walked with you, haven't really trusted you. Those of us in this room, those that have questioned their faith, am I really a believer? Have I really trusted? Father, would you strengthen them this morning? How do you do that? By helping us to see Jesus in the right place. The Bible says that he has authority. Lord, you, you're not a king. You're the king of kings. You are not a lord. You are the lord of lords. You are everything. 